We've been looking at a section of Scripture in John chapter 8, a sermon, more specifically, that Jesus gave. I call it a sermon. It was really a back and forth, an exchange that Jesus had with a group of religious men the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. We have, over the last few weeks, covered this particular exchange quite extensively. I want to read a section, though, to set the stage for an overarching question, something we do need to take some time to look at. Verse 46 of John 8, we read that Jesus said to these religious leaders, which of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. It's quite a statement Jesus is making to some religious leaders. Then the Jews answered and said to Jesus, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This is an insult. And Jesus replied, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Verse 52, then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And that's actually a false statement because they weren't dead. Physically, maybe they had passed, but there's life. Death is a transformation of sorts. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you, they ask, greater than our father Abraham, who was dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Theologically, these men don't understand what Jesus is saying about death. And really, there was a divide in religious thought in that day. You had the Pharisees, the more traditionalists, that did believe in an afterlife, though they had some weird views of it. The Sadducees, the other predominant political party, religious party of the day, didn't believe in the afterlife at all. This was a contemporary argument about death. And so what Jesus is saying isn't computing. And so in verse 54, he answers, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And then the the real interesting part. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they pick up stones to stone him to death because they understood Jesus was attributing the divine holy name of God to himself. The last Sunday, we did unpack the significance of this amazing, probably one of the most incredible statements Jesus makes, this statement before Abraham was, I am. But this morning, I want to take time to unpack what Jesus meant when he makes this statement, that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That, that, it, it really blows my mind what Jesus is implying. And naturally, two obvious questions emerge. First, What did Jesus mean when he said, my day? What day is Jesus referencing? Clearly, using this pronoun, my, Jesus is referencing a specific day of incredible significance to him. This was not a day that was particular to Abraham, but one in which Abraham saw 
and came to understand its significance and importance. It's why we're told he rejoiced and was glad. Secondly, the second question that kind of emerges is when did Abraham see this day and rejoice? And and there are varying opinions about this particular topic. But keep in mind, as we mentioned last Sunday, that this story, this particular story, this, this reference is placed within the greater context of this exchange. And at the point of the exchange, the context, the substance, is the topic they're misunderstanding about death and resurrection. And so Jesus invokes Abraham this day in that greater context. With this in mind, I think that there's really only one occurrence, only one known interaction recorded in the book of Genesis between Jesus and Abraham that plays on that important topic, the topic of death and resurrection. And that specific story we find recorded for us in Genesis chapter 22. As you're turning to Genesis 22, I should remind you of the overall premise of our approach to the Gospel of John. Last year, we studied the book of Genesis, and we titled our series, The Genesis of Grace. The one book of the Bible that has no law ever even mentioned is the book of Genesis. The law wasn't given to Exodus chapter 20. By definition, Genesis is a book of grace. The the whole book oozes God's grace. And this is what's important about that, is John, the Apostle John, writing much much later than the other gospel authors, the synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, writing much later, pins his account, and he does something specific. He sets a precedent right at the beginning. He ties his account, his narrative, back to Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And you can see an interesting parallel between John's Gospel and Genesis. And because Genesis is about grace, our approach to John's gospel is that it is the gospel of grace. And as you work your way through, constantly John is pulling themes from the book of Genesis. And this is a great example. He's referencing Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, we find an amazing story. A story you're probably already familiar with. But we're told that it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now for context, it's important to point out that it's been approximately 25 to 30 years since God had given Abraham and Sarah this long-awaited promised child. This son. Isaac. It means that the context, as you get to Genesis 22, is that Abraham is around 130 years old. Isaac is not a young lad. He's approaching 30. Now imagine this incredible season of Abraham and Sarah, their life, how they've been enjoying things. Not only had they settled in the land that God had promised them, not only are they enjoying peace with their neighbors, Not only has there been a calm in the home since Hagar and Ishmael 
moved out. But Abraham and Sarah, they are savoring, enjoying the season of life with Isaac, the son that they had longed so many years to have. After 90 long years, think about it. Sarah, she is relishing the opportunity to be a mom. She's dreamed of it for years to be needed, to selflessly care and love her miracle baby. As Isaac grows up, Abraham, I'm sure, is thrilled with the opportunity to teach his son about the Lord, about the time that he was called out of Ur. There's no doubt that Isaac understands the significance of his birth. I mean, at some point, he's going to be asking the obvious questions, right? He's the only child in Sunday school with parents that are card-carrying members of the AARP. It's an intrigue. Isaac's spiritual heritage, it's rich. Life in this season, these 25, 30 years, it's grand. For the first time, they're experiencing the full life that God had promised so many years before. The life they had, they had left their home and family to inherit. Now, it's true that these things had taken much longer than they had anticipated to come to fruition. Family planning hadn't exactly worked out very well for Abraham and Sarah. And yet they would not have traded these years with Isaac for anything. It's with that context that after these things, the chapter opens that God tested Abraham. For starters, Please understand what this doesn't mean. Though some of your translations, i.e. the old King James Version, might use the word tempt, that God tempted Abraham. There is a reason that the New King James Version and the ESV use the word test and not tempt. While the idea of tempting carries with it the negative connotation of enticing one into disobedience, this word test, it indicated that God wanted to reveal something to Abraham. In contrast to how some teach this passage, God isn't testing Abraham so that he, God can ascertain some greater insight into Abraham's faith. It's not as though God is presenting this scenario, this test, so that he can learn something about Abraham that he doesn't already know. Additionally, the test wasn't designed to reveal to Abraham something about himself. Rather, the test, as we'll come to see, was designed to reveal something to Abraham about God. Again, in John 8, the interaction was designed to allow Abraham to see the divine. My day. And it's this point that is critical to your understanding of what's actually happening in Genesis 22. This command to take your only son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering, intended to be a mechanism by which God was going to reveal to Abraham something that was of radical importance about himself, about his heart, about his purposes. You see, the fundamental point behind the command was to create some conditions by which God was going to connect with Abraham, was going to reveal himself to Abraham in a, a, a much deeper, intimate way. Contrary to the, the cynical accusation about Genesis 22, God did not want Abraham 
to actually sacrifice his son. Please know the, the passage doesn't say that. God wasn't asking Abraham to commit murder, nor was he sanctioning human sacrifice. Instead, God's appeal here was for Abraham to be willing to do what? To offer Isaac as a burnt offering. God was asking Abraham to offer his son, not actually kill his son or sacrifice him. In the Old Testament, and we can assume within just cultural context that Abraham understood the implications, but this phrase, a burnt offering, it signified the full consecration of an offering. Sometimes in the Old Testament, offerings were made, but they were kept over. It allowed the priests to eat, to have food. They were used in other ways. But, then, but there was this burnt offering, and it was a full burn. Like, you like well done? This was charred. There was nothing left. It was a full consecration. Total consumption. Nothing remaining. A burnt offering demonstrated total surrender to the Lord by the offerer. In a sense, there was a reason that God was asking Abraham to completely surrender the most important thing in his life, that being his only son, Isaac. You see, in Isaac rested more than just Abraham's offspring. You see, Isaac represented more than just Abraham's heir. Isaac represented his hopes, his dreams, his faith. As his only son, unlike Ishmael, Isaac represented Abraham's assurance, his confidence that God would provide a savior for his sins. Don't forget that it was that simple belief, the belief in a savior that was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. It's with this in mind that it's not an accident, that this is the first time in the Bible, Genesis 22, that we find the word love. Whereas the love that exists between a husband and a wife is profound in and of itself, what we call the law of first mention, the first mention of love, establishes the idea here that God decided to intentionally frame our human understanding of love, not within the context of a husband's love for a wife or a wife's love for a husband, but instead within the context of a father's love for a son. Something interesting. Well, a husband and a wife enter into a love relationship mainly through a free will decision. A decision that each party makes, exchanges avows, then chooses to remain in. We call it a covenantial love. A father's love for his son is a totally different and radically unique experience. No father chooses to love his son. Instead, it's that very moment his son comes into existence that an unexplainable love just initially and immediately floods his being. I have two little boys. The moment they were both born, I loved them with all of my heart to the point I would have died immediately. I just met them. My wife has known them for nine months. I'm just meeting them. And it's in that very moment that there's something just happens. My son, I'm his father. I would have died that very moment. You see, a father's love for his son is, is one of nature, not will. Loving a son is never something a father has to choose to do. 
He'll love his son even to a fault. Aside from being distinct from a husband-wife love, it should also be noted that a father-son love is unique to a father-daughter or mother-son love. Let me explain. While the nature of the love is the same, it is a truth that when a daughter marries another man or a man takes a wife, the context for how the father or the mother, how their love manifests, it automatically changes. It has to. And yet, that same dynamic isn't applicable to a father when his son marries. Like, unique to all other human interactions, a father's relationship with his son and the way that love manifests never changes for life. My daughter Mabel, oh, I love her with all my heart. But the way my love manifests towards her will change when she's around 40 and I allow her to get married. At that point, there's a new context. I'm no longer the most significant male in her life, which is why it'll be 40. I'll just be too old. Her husband takes on a new role, takes a role away from me. And same thing with a mom. It changes, but not so with a dad. This is significant. For of all human relationships for God to illustrate, to establish this context for love, a love experienced within his triune nature, God specifically chose to present it to mankind as the love of a father for a son because it never changes. I hope you know the first member of the Holy Trinity isn't actually a father with the second being a son. Instead, these are what we call anthropomorphic descriptions. They're non-human descriptions. These two members present themselves to humanity as father and son. Why? They do this so as humanity, we can understand the true essence of their relationship. Father and son, it's, it's even limiting there. It transcends that. Over and over, Jesus refers to God as his father and himself as the son. And this is so we can understand the nature of their love. Within the Godhead exists an eternal love most similar to a father and son dynamic. As though God the father had an only begotten son. So, it's within this context of Abraham's love for his only son Isaac that now God asks him to do something unspeakable, like to make the most ultimate offering. In order for Abraham to relate to an aspect of himself that the Lord is wanting to reveal to him, Abraham had to be first willing to trust the future and the well-being of his son, the thing he loved more than anything else in the world, to the will and the purposes of God. Now before we continue, I want to go ahead and, and explain what aspect of his person God wanted Abraham to experience so that their communion would, would deepen. Instead of saving this for the end, I want to go ahead and kind of give you the key so as we go through the rest of the story, you can understand where we're headed. And asking Abraham to offer his only son on a mountain in Moriah, 
God was illustrating the experience that he would one day encounter when he would make the decision to offer his only begotten son to die for the sins of the world, ironically, on Moriah. The truth is that through this experience of offering Isaac, Abraham will come to understand firsthand what it would personally cost God when he offered his only son, Jesus, to be the Savior for man's sins, for his sin, Jesus' day. As a father type, God would make the ultimate sacrifice. And as the son, Jesus would submit himself to this destiny. As we go through the story in Isaac, we're going to find a beautiful picture of Jesus. So it's important you keep in mind as we work through the text that it would be through this experience of offering his only son that Abraham will end up connecting with the heart of God and in doing so come to learn how deeply God loved him. Well, the only specific instruction that God gives Abraham here at the onset is that he go to a land known as Moriah to one of the mountains. Then God adds, I'll show you which mountain." The word Moriah literally means chosen by Jehovah. In essence, God is saying to Abraham, get up, go to a land that I've chosen, to a mountain that I will show you. It's clear that there was a very specific place that God is wanting this lesson to take place, to occur. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. I love that word yonder. And worship. And we will come back to you. Abraham rose early in the morning. Don't, don't let that bounce off of you. I think it's important to give credit where credit's due. Abraham has been given a set of impossible instructions to offer his only son Isaac. Get out of town. I would have taken a few days to think about it, to really make sure that I'm hearing from God, but not so with Abraham. Abraham here, he acts immediately. He's obedient. He wastes no time. We're told he rises early. He personally prepares all the necessary items for the journey. He's 130, by the way. He even goes so far as to split the wood for the burnt offering himself. He then recruits two men to travel with him, a little bit of security, as well as Isaac. Abraham saddles his donkey. They all head north to the land of Moriah because Abraham is in Beersheba the far south. It takes them, according to the chapter, three days to make the journey. We're told on the third day that Abraham lifted his eyes and he saw the place afar off. Like, imagine what that trip must have been like. Imagine Abraham's reaction when he finally saw the place. And yet, it's this statement that Abraham makes to these young men that reveal much more is happening in his heart than what we're able to see. He tells the young men, notice it, to hang back, explaining that he and Isaac are going to go alone, right, in order to do what? 
He says it specifically. We're going to go and we're going to worship. Now, what makes that fascinating is, again, we have another first mention. The first mention of love is in this chapter. The first mention of worship is also here. In the Hebrew, this word worship is shakah. It means to bow down, to prostrate oneself in homage. The context for this first mention is revealing. Abraham and Isaac were not going to Moriah to sing some lullabies. They're not going to, to sing songs. Nor does it say that their intention was to actually make an offering. All Abraham says is, me and Isaac are going, and we're going to go worship. Abraham views here his decision to obey God so that he could connect with God on a much deeper level as being worshipped. This is what he sees this whole process as being, worship. Worship to God. As such, I want you to know that worship is, is much more than an act before God. Worship is the very pursuit of God. Worship is the desire to commune with God in a very real and tangible way. It's to connect with the heart of God. Also notice what else Abraham says to the young men. He, he says, pretty definitively, right? We will come back to you. We, implying him and Isaac. And that does reveal another element of Abraham's thought process. On one hand, Abraham knows that he's going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, which might very well result in the death of his son. On the other hand, Abraham has no doubts, no questions, that Isaac is the son of promise, that through Isaac's seed, through his family, would come a Messiah, a Savior. Isaac has no kids. So on one hand, Abraham is thinking, yeah, I'm going to offer my son. On the other hand, he's very confident that whatever is going to happen on this mountain, they're both coming back. So think about it for a minute. If Abraham knew Isaac might die, but he's confident that Isaac's going to live, how do you reconcile the two? Now, Genesis 22 doesn't provide us the answer, but we do have the answer provided in Hebrews 11. Let me read you a section of Scripture. We're told by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, placing the context here in Genesis 22, offered up Isaac. And he, who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said, and Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. I'm going to go to Moriah, and I might have to sacrifice my son. That could result in his death. I also know that he's the son of promise, so he's going to live. We're going to come back. I don't know how. I might have to kill my son. But Abraham believed that then a resurrection would follow, that Isaac would be resurrected. This decision to leave these young men behind so that only he and Isaac would go forward alone. It's also symbolic. The, the reality is Abraham and Isaac, father and son, they were going to a place that no servant could follow. What would happen on that mountain and its greater symbolism was a work that necessitated only the involvement 
of the Father and the Son and only the obedience of the Father and the Son. There was no role for a servant. In much the same way, as it pertains to the atonement of your sin, there is equally nothing a servant can ever contribute. When it comes to the atonement of sin, that special work, there's no involvement for you. There's only two, the Father and the Son, no one else. There's nothing you can add. Salvation is a work of Jesus and God the Father. So verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Like, what a picture here. Like, as these two are making their way up this mountain, who's carrying the wood for the sacrifice? Well, we're told that it's Isaac. Abraham chopped the wood, but Isaac's the one who carries it. How fascinating that Isaac, the son, willingly chose to carry the wood to his own place of execution. Would you do that? No, I don't think so. Yeah, we're going to kill you by firing squad, but first we need you to clean the guns and load them. No thanks. No thanks. How interesting that in John 19, verse 16, we read of Jesus that Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Isaac carries the wood, and Jesus had to carry his own cross. As they're making their way up the mountain, Isaac begins to see that there's something a little off, something awry. Well, he rightly understood that they were going to worship, and obviously, as a component of their worship, they're going to make an offering to the Lord. I mean, why else would he be carrying so much wood and the father of this fire? It dawns on Isaac that there was a component missing, something actually quite important. Isaac simply asks his father, where's the lamb? You know, the burnt offering. And notice Abraham's reply. Look again. He says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, tragically, the English translators butcher this particular sentence. And their translation from, from uh, Hebrew into English, this is, this is off. And the reason this is off is that a word is added, not in the original. And they add it for clarity, at least they think so. Specifically, the word for. Tragically, it, it, it yields a contrary result. Like, if you remove for, what is Abraham actually saying to Isaac? Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Abraham's response should read this way. God will provide himself the lamb. For a burnt offering, not for himself, will provide himself. Furthermore, it should also be pointed out, <laughs> again, this is the first mention of the word lamb in Scripture. Isaac asks here, where is the lamb? Do you know the first time the word lamb is found in the New Testament? 
We find it in John chapter 1, verse 29. Keep in mind, that means the word lamb is never used by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. The word lamb you'll never find in the New Testament until John 1, verse 29, and it's in this passage that John the baptizer sees Jesus approach. And what does he declare? He cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What makes that interesting to me is that, in a way, John the Baptist is answering Isaac's original question. Where is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb! And in doing so, confirms Abraham's reply that God will provide himself the Lamb. 25 years after the 2500 years after the fact millions of lambs millions would be sacrificed throughout Hebrew history and yet the ultimate sacrifice for man's sins wouldn't come until God provided himself the lamb and then note Jesus was not just a lamb but instead the lamb of God a definite article fulfilling a very specific promise. And notice something interesting happens following Abraham's reply to Isaac's question. Look back, Genesis 22. In verse 6, we read, and, and the two of them went together. And then this exchange happens. And in verse 8, we now read, so the two of them went together. I know that's very subtle, but in the original language, there is a significant inclusion of this word so. What it tells us is that while Isaac, in verse 6, is just going along with his father, not really knowing the big plan, in verse 8, Isaac has now fully understood what's going on and is choosing to surrender himself to the will of his father. And the two of them went, it's casual, so provides us determination and purpose. Well, verse 9, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now, remember, Isaac is not a little boy. He's 30 years old, and his father is 130. He's not a spring chicken. I mean, at what point does Isaac take a step back in this whole process and say, you know, eh, enough's enough. Like, I mean, okay, carrying the wood, cool. Seeing the fire, eh, all right. Asking where's the offering, Abraham's response, that suffice. God will provide himself the lamb. Like, that's oh, all good. Cool, Dad, I'm, I'm with you. And yet, now that they've reached the place on the mountain, Abraham builds an altar like this request for Isaac. Hey, son, can you, can you put your feet together? Um, okay, Dad. Yeah, sure. And then Abraham starts binding his feet. It's going to be kind of hard to walk, Dad. Uh, could, you, could you put your hands behind your back? Um, okay, Dad. Like, this seems weird. Um, I, I, I need you to now just lay down on the altar. It's okay. We, there's a plan. Like, at what point is Isaac like, no, time out. Like, this is not progressing the direction that, uh, that I'm on board with. And yet, notice, 
Like he's rolling right along, isn't he? Total surrender, complete submission, which tells us something important. Isaac is a willing participant. Did Isaac also believe that if he died, he would be resurrected? Like he's, no doubt about it, surrenders his life completely into the hands of his father. It was with that in mind, I I again consider the picture of Jesus. In John 10, verse 18, we're told, Jesus says that no one takes my life from me. That's what Jesus says. And then he adds, but I lay, lay it down of myself. Well, verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife, to slay his son. How far are we going with this? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Had to repeat his name because he is 130 years old and his hearing's not that great. So Abraham replies, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. For starters, please keep in mind this reference to the angel of the Lord, capital angel, capital A, of the Lord. It presents what we call in Scripture a Christophany. I I don't have time to get into full explanation of what a Christophany is other than to say that there are occasions, and we see it a lot in Genesis, of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, appearing on earth pre-incarnate. So before he comes as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, Jesus existed, and there were times that he came and interacted with humanity. A great example of this is with Joshua. And they enter the land, and there's Jericho. He's now the general. Moses is not with him. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And we're told that there appeared to him in the night a man, the angel of the Lord. Who are you? I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Jacob wrestled with an angel, wrestled with Jehovah, Jesus. The Assyrians are camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. And we're told in the night, the angel of the Lord came down and slew 185,000 Assyrians. Jesus wielding a sword. Christophanies occur. I say that to point out that in this moment, the angel of the Lord, not just God, someone specific, please know the voice is Jesus's. And what is the message? Abraham, there's no need to slay Isaac. His obedience and his willingness to offer his only son was all that was needed on the part of Abraham for him to to fully understand God's incredible love for him. At this point, Abraham knows personally what it would mean for God the Father to willingly offer his only son to atone for sins. Experientially, Abraham knew what that would be, and he could relate to the depths of God's love. It's not an accident that Jesus stopped Abraham from offering Isaac as a human sacrifice Mainly because as much as Isaac was a picture of Jesus, 
as a sinful man himself, Isaac's death would have been in vain. It wouldn't have been accepted or an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. The truth is that there was only and would only be one human sacrifice that God would not only sanction, but would accept as the atonement for sin. One death that God would find pleasing, the death of his only son, a sinless son named Jesus, the perfect man who we're told in Scripture takes away the sins of the world. I am convinced this was a point that Abraham completely understood in the moment. I think that it's in this moment, seeing the symbolism behind everything occurring, that Abraham rejoiced because he saw a day, Jesus' day. And he saw it and he was glad, the day that God would offer his only son to atone for sin so that we might have eternal life, that we might have victory over sin, hell, and the grave. Verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there was behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall, future tense, be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Note, this must be Jesus and not an angel, for an angel can't make such a promise. So Abraham returned to the young men. And they rose and went together to Beersheba. Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Notice Abraham calls the location where all of these things take place. Literally, in the Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. Translated as, the Lord will provide. Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. Abraham understood, right? That it would be on this very location, on a mountain in the land of Moriah, a mountain we would come to know as Calvary or Golgotha, that God would provide His only Son, the Lamb, to atone for the sins of the world. Abraham understood it. As a matter of fact, in writing 600 years after the fact, Moses, who compiles for us Genesis, he actually confirms a national belief that, quote, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, or literally the Son of God shall be seen. Though we know that the temple was constructed on Mount Moriah. We don't know the exact location of Golgotha, nor do we know the exact location of Calvary. All we know for sure is that God commanded Abraham to go to the land, and on one of those mountains, this would take place. In closing, now that we understand the significance of Jesus' statement in John, John 8, in light of this story here in Genesis 22, I want to close with three simple points. First, though in the life of the Christian, tests are inevitable, 
Never forget the purpose of the test. God doesn't test you so he can learn something about you that he didn't know in advance. He knows everything about you. He also knows you're a moron. He doesn't need a test to realize that, and, and often, like, you'll fail. And then in some instances, you'll see, the test is not for God to learn something of you. That's not why you go through tests. Nor are tests designed to reveal something to you that you don't know about yourself. I don't need a test to know I'm an idiot. I know I'm an idiot. I don't need a test to realize that, that my flesh tends to be way stronger than, than my spirit, than the spirit. Like, I don't need a test to echo what Paul says in Romans, that those things I want to do, I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, man, I end up doing them. Ah, I don't need a test to learn things about me, to feel better about myself. No, in the life of a Christian, as we see with Abraham, the father of our faith, tests are designed so that God can reveal to you something about himself that you don't know. Oh, it gives a total different meaning to the test, doesn't it? For Abraham, this test was a mechanism by which he came to a better view of what? Of Jesus. And God's love for him. The, the purpose in offering Isaac was for Abraham to understand the depth of what would be required to atone for sin. To experience God's love. Tests in your life, friend, they're designed not so God can learn something about you or you can learn something about you, but for you to learn something about him. That he is a comforter. That he loves you that he cares for you, that he can be your strength and your weakness. Secondly, and this is likely the point that Jesus is making by bringing this up in John 8, there's only one human sacrifice that God accepts. And they're not yours. It's the one Jesus made when he offered himself as the lamb. Like the entire point of the story was not to illustrate the offerings and the sacrifices that you need to make to grow closer to God. Have you ever heard sermons on this passage that kind of end up there? Are you willing to offer the most important thing in your life? No. No, I'm not. Good thing I'm not being asked. That it's not about me making an offering. It's not about me making a sacrifice. It's about a sacrifice God made for me. And that changes everything. It's grace. It's not something I have to work for or merit or knuckle down to do. It's something that God has already done. You see, the point of this story is to illustrate that your relationship with God is not based on the offerings you make, but the one offering He's made on your behalf. That God provided Himself the sacrifice. Jesus makes this interesting comment to Abraham. He, sa he says, By myself I have sworn, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessings, I will bless you. Now notice, Abraham's obedience wasn't the cause of God's blessings. Abraham's obedience demonstrated his faith in a Savior, which was the cause of God's blessings. 
Lastly, I hope you know this. God the Father loves you more than He loves even His only Son, Jesus. I don't understand that. I don't grasp that. I'm not sure how how all of that works. But Jesus offered His Son, sacrificed His Son for you. I don't get the inner components to that. But I can say that God so loved you. His love for you was so magnanimous, so deep, so radical, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life with him. Understand the weight of this incredible reality. It's so massive that I'll just close with a line from what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, quote, so strange. It's strange. So boundless was the love which pitied dying men. The Father sent His equal Son to give them life again. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day because Abraham understood the implications of that day. That's the point Jesus is making in John 8. The point for us, may we rejoice in that day. May we continue to rejoice in that day. May we always rejoice in that day. For by His sacrifice, we've been saved. And so, Father, Lord, we let that just...